This is episode 202 of IDRA Class Notes. easy as a parent or a teacher to say, well, you know, why don't we have a newer building? Why don't we have these curriculum materials, the facilities and teacher pay? All of those things come from a very, I would say, complicated equation that is being determined at a much higher level. The districts themselves and the campuses do have some say in how they spend the funding, but how they get the funds is something that a lot of people don't understand. Hello and welcome to IDRA's Class Notes podcast. I am Dr. Paula Johnson, and today we are going to be talking about equity audits. I am the director of the IDRA EX South, a technical assistance center that is federally funded, and we provide assistance to school districts and state education agencies around equitable practices and policies for students. When we conduct an equity audit, we are looking to help a district identify areas of concern that might be leading to inequitable practices and discriminatory outcomes for students of color, students who are English learners, students who are from families with limited income. So our goal is to provide tools and strategies and recommendations around policy and practice that will lead to more equitable outcomes for students. And today I have with me Morgan Craven. Morgan, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Morgan Craven. I'm the National Director of Policy, Advocacy, and Community Engagement at IDRA. I asked Morgan to join me today to speak more specifically about policy in terms of educational practice. A lot of teachers, as I am a former math teacher, we see the instructional side of education and how our um, teaching materials and curriculum and professional development lead to student outcomes. However, a lot of times we are disengaged or distanced from policies on the other side of the administrative side that inform and impact instruction. So I'm going to ask Morgan to share her views on how policy impacts academic outcomes for students. Thanks, Paula. So one thing that I really like about the way that we all do our work is that, as you mentioned, the folks from our organization that work on educational practice work very closely with the folks from our organization that work on policy and community engagement. And we all work very closely with the folks from our organization that do our research and data analyses. And the reason that we do our work that way is because all of those things are connected, which is the point that that you are making. So even when things feel siloed for teachers or administrators in schools, it's important to remember that research should drive practice and practice should drive research, and both of those should also drive policy. So I really think of educational policy as setting the stage and informing the background for the way that schools and teachers operate, even if they aren't actively seeing those policies and seeing how those policies play out. So as a couple of examples, you know, the issue that IDRA was really founded on um, was fair school finance. And so it's policies that drive how schools are funded and whether those funding formulas are equitable for students. And what we know is that 
In a lot of states, most schools are funded by a combination of local tax revenue and state funding. And so poor school districts or school districts with low tax bases typically have fewer resources. And those are often uh, school districts that educate students of color. And so when we think about those policies playing out now and what that means for school districts is that we have a lot of equity concerns in the policy space when it comes to school funding, especially due to the impact of COVID-19 on our economy. So when we see those state budgets taking a hit. We know it's the poorest school districts serving mostly students of color who are going to suffer most and see reductions in the resources they have for their students. So that's one example. That's huge because I think that the school teachers and families, if they are not you know, abreast of all the information that goes into making these decisions. You know, it's easy as a parent or a teacher to say, well, why can't we have, you know, why don't we have a newer building? Why don't we have these curriculum materials, the facilities and teacher pay? All of those things come from a very, I would say, complicated equation that is being determined at a much higher level. The districts themselves and the campuses do have some say in how they spend the funding, but how they get the funds is something that a lot of people don't understand. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. You're really pointing to another inequity that like everyone should consider, which is in how policies are made. It's not just the policies themselves that are inequitable, but the process by which they are made is often really unfair. So if we think about the example of school funding, as you pointed out, it's often very difficult for a lot of folks to understand. And I think that is fundamentally wrong. Families should be able to understand how their schools are funded and how their students get access to programs and materials and high quality teachers. And so it's incumbent upon the advocacy community and decision makers to really ensure that communities and families are part of the policymaking process so that, again, the process itself is equitable, which I would argue leads to more equitable policies and outcomes for, you know, the students who have long been impacted by educational inequities, like students of color, like students from families with low income, like English learners, like students with disabilities. Absolutely. I think it's really, uh, you know, part of our Quality Schools Action Framework mentions in light public policy, and it's the public piece that a lot of our public is missing for the people that the teachers and, and students and families that we serve in the highest numbers, that public piece they're left out of. And a lot of it is, again, like you mentioned, uh, advocacy efforts. It's not that we don't have advocates. It's just that, you know, the word has not spread to everyone. And sometimes, just like in most of our democratic and republic processes, there are a lot of people who feel like their word, their voice is not heard or is not taken into consideration, but their contributions could be, could greatly impact, you know, how those policies are developed. Something else that we talked about earlier, talking about teaching quality, you know, who is hired and how they're hired. I know that one of the major areas of focus of technical assistance requests that we receive from districts who are currently under desegregation orders relates to diversifying the teaching staff and the administrators, so like faculty and staff. And there are a lot of discriminatory policies that are actually in place. There may not be written to intentionally discriminate. However, 
there's a lot of discriminatory practices that occur. Uh, would you speak to that as far as the hiring of staff and teachers? Sure. As you point out, this is something that a lot of school districts have been instructed to correct as part of the requirements to desegregate schools. Diversity of teachers is certainly a large part of that, that I think a lot of people actually forget about as part of what it takes to actually have a truly desegregated school. But what we see is that, you know, we have concentrations of inexperienced teachers who have not been teaching for very long in in schools in high poverty neighborhoods and serving students of color. Those types of teachers are often concentrated in, in those types of schools. And again, going back to our school funding policies, that the way that they are often constructed means that well, schools in wealthier neighborhoods are able to attract, retain, and pay teachers more money, pay high quality experienced teachers more money. And so those teachers tend to be concentrated in those schools as well. I think that just as policies have caused a lot of these inequities in who is hired, how they're hired, and where certified high quality teachers are located, we need to change policies in order to make sure that that important resource is distributed equitably among schools. And just as an example, for English learners, for example, there are certainly research-based ways to attract and retain certified teachers. And yet we have policies in place that allow um, school districts to waive those requirements for English learners, for example, and create really pockets of high quality teacher, certified teacher deserts in communities, particularly in rural areas. And so there are opportunities to change our policies to really correct that and make sure we're hiring, training, retaining diverse, high quality teachers. Absolutely. I totally agree. Thank you for mentioning the fact that it's not just about diversifying the teaching staff, but it's also about the quality of teaching that fall under equitable resources. Students deserve a highly qualified teacher. You know, there's a definition for that, and a lot of it does come back to certification, but you do see high numbers of districts who are employing teachers in positions where they're teaching out of field. I know coming from a STEM background, um, there are a lot of openings that are left for you know, sometimes a full year where you have students with a substitute for an entire year in a secondary math class. And that's just, you know, that should be unheard of. You should not see any examples of those, but I'm going to focus on public school. I don't even want to go into any other type of setting because you'll see it at, at much higher rates. But in the public school setting, when you cannot fill a position and you fill it with a long-term sub who has no degree in that subject area, you know, again, that's an issue of equitable access to quality instruction. And then on top of that, we have a lot of situations where when we look at equity walks, so we were in a school, it's a high school, and we visited the campus and we went to several different classrooms. And this is the school district is not rural, but they're not large. I think they have a total of eight campuses. And the racial breakdown of the student population, I believe enrollment is something like 65% white, 25% black, and the rest is a mixture of other demographics. And almost every classroom that we went to that was, say, an AP or gifted or honors course was 
predominantly white with very little representation by um, African-American students or any other racial background. And so that's something else that we see another request for is, you know, increasing um, enrollment in advanced programs, advanced placement, dual credit, gifted and talented, which is very difficult to numbers in because that's a whole different thing. But so when we talk to the Office for Civil Rights and we talk to the Department of Justice on these cases, we ask, you know, are we looking to increase enrollment in advanced courses? Because sometimes like in Texas, that just means algebra two and beyond. So just depending on those things. But one thing that we see is, again, when it comes back to policy, we think about some of the site-driven policies regarding access to advanced coursework, where it's based on a teacher recommendation or, you know, what were the courses that they had before versus opportunity to learn. I've seen students who didn't do very well in previous courses, but in a, an advanced or more challenging setting, they blossom. So what have you seen as far as access to programs that might help inform changes in practice. I don't want to keep going back to this, but, you know, often access to programs and again, the types of teachers that you're describing who are well-trained and are able to recognize the needs of students and know how to be responsive to the unique needs of students are tied to the resources that schools have, which is tied to our funding policies. Obviously, there are policies that also dictate the requirements that are needed to graduate. We certainly saw that here in Texas and in many other states where when policies change about graduation requirements, they often water down those requirements, suggesting that all students shouldn't have access to advanced level courses. And as a result, you see that many students often concentrated in school districts that have high numbers of students of color or students from families with limited incomes are the ones who suffer most under those policy changes. But again, that means that there are opportunities to rework our policies and do things correctly to really benefit all students. And I would say that that's particularly important now as we think about what instruction and access to courses will look like during COVID and sure. at home learning. And there are all sorts of new challenges, many of which I don't think that we yet have answers to because we don't understand the full scope of the problem. But if we're thinking about long-term, what students are able to access, we know that if there were limitations already and inequities already, they are only being exacerbated by the fact that we now have distance learning and social isolation, you know, where students have even more limits educational programs. Absolutely. Our weekly webinar series on response in the face of COVID-19 definitely addresses the digital divide as well as, you know, transitioning into a remote learning setting for parents, teachers, and students, and understanding that the opportunity gaps are just widening given these, these circumstances with students in such a variety of circumstances, you know, from students who have all that they need at home, but still their parents are not instructors, they are not autodidactic. You know, they can't just teach themselves, they can do activities, but is learning really occurring? We've talked about how attendance versus, you know, grades as far as um, quality of work is, you know, definitely being challenged right now. And then most, I guess, uh, profound is 
the large numbers, the overwhelming number of students who do not have access to internet connections or the devices that they need to even, you know, use the internet and what school districts are trying to do in an attempt to reach all of their students. And really, we say that that's the first critical step is, you know, just checking in on all of your students, making sure that you know where they are. A lot of districts have reported uh, what they're calling disappearing students. They really just don't know where they are. And some of those might be migrant students who have returned to their home country or here in the States, if their parents are considered essential workers and do not have childcare, then those children may be actually living with someone else right now and that, you know, that they're not staying in contact with the school district. And here as we close, you know, in Texas, we'll be closing school in about two and a half weeks. And then it's summer and we really don't know what's going to happen in the fall. One thing that you touched on that I want to just circle back to before we close, our Equity walks help districts identify areas of need, the greatest area of need to prioritize our technical assistance that we might provide them, but also give them a gauge of how they're doing and how to make those improvements. One thing that I believe the IDRA EAC South team does very well is keeping the family and community in education. And so one indicator for us is their level of engaging families and communities around school issues, around student achievement, around policies and practices. And so is there anything that you would add to our podcast today to maybe share with school district leaders who are having challenges in that area around input from their community? Yeah, it's such a good point. I'm glad you brought it back up because I meant to mention this earlier. It is now more critical than ever for school districts to engage with families and students, partially for the reason you pointed out. Many of them have not had contact and that is just unacceptable. It's unacceptable to lose children. And that's acknowledging certainly that there are real barriers to connecting with some families, but we we must find students. One thing to remember is that it's actually a requirement for any education agency, and that would include all of them who receive federal funds, which is pretty much all public schools and charter schools, to engage with families in program development. And that includes CARES Act emergency funds. So on our Learning Goes On COVID website, on our IDRA's COVID website, Learning Goes On, we do weekly updates on educational practice and policy changes under COVID. And one of our focus is on what those federal requirements are. So, you know, all agencies that receive the CARES Act emergency funds and any other federal funds must engage with families and communities as they develop programs. So not only is it a requirement, but it's just a best practice, staying in contact with families and students, making sure they're part of decision-making processes, even, you know, implementing procedures to help them develop curriculum to really meet the needs of students, especially during at-home learning. Those are really critical parts of strong local district and state policy. Thank you so much. I mean, this is a very difficult time for everyone. There's, there's challenges all around, but I am pleased about how we are trying to be as responsive as possible and definitely sharing as much information as we can and as we develop and find it. And I just wanted to close and bring it all back together with the idea that 
you know, equity walks are not something that happen. They're not static. It's not just something that is a checklist and like a report. It's more about a living document that continues allowing districts to assess their health and how they're serving their students and families. And I wanted to close with a quote from Dr. Bradley Scott, who served IDRA for many, many years as the EAC director. And he says, systemic equity can only be created in an environment that embraces a set of underlying assumptions about the right of every learner to receive the best possible public education. And our work with school districts is to do just that through the EAC and through IDRA services and research and policy and family engagement. And it's really important for people in the education world at every level, from the state education agency to the families, to understand that every student has the right to a quality education. And that that is the whole purpose of public schools. And that is our entire reason for existence at IDRA and that we are gonna continue that fight um, until it comes to fruition. And so again, if you are listening to our podcast right now and are interested in finding out more about conducting an equity walk for your campus or district, you can reach me at paula.johnson at idra.org or go to the IDRA EAC South website and submit an intake questionnaire. And we will be happy to talk to you about helping make some positive changes for your school district. And so if there's nothing else, Ms. Morgan, that's great. I will close us out today and just say thank you and be safe. And we really are in this together and just make the most of the day. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.